Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get thirty, thirty. Ready to get thirty, ready to get twenty, twenty, twenty. Ready to get twenty, twenty. Ready to get fifteen, 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 fifteen. Just fifteen bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Oshie Ginsberg. This is episode 108 with Greg Callahan. He's an author. He's a journalist. He's an interesting guy. You can find him at Greg, C-A-L-L-A-G-H-A-N, the number one on Twitter. Let him know that you heard him here. Um, if you like the show, just go to oshieginsberg.com. There you'll find links to subscribe to the show, listen to the show, find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc., etc., etc. I'm pretty easy to find. If you want to send me an email, send osher email at gmail.com. Um, thanks to everybody that uh, came and said hello to me at the Cruelty Free Festival in Sydney today. I don't know about you, but I'm super full. I ate all of the things. It was really, really good. Uh, so if if you're new, welcome. Hi, please subscribe to the show and uh, send a rating through on iTunes. That really helps helps me out and helps new people find the show. So the, um, that'd be ace if you could uh, if you could do that for me. Thank you very very much. This week, um, I should point out that I did Mia Friedman's podcast. No filter. She's lovely, and uh, we uh, we we did a goodie. We did a real goodie. She and I got very deep, very dark. I'm glad to know Mia. She's a lovely lady. I'm very proud to know her. I'm, I'm grateful that what she's done is so profound in the uh, media industry. She's done um, some really, really good work. And, um, yeah, she and I had a conversation uh, on her podcast, and we got deep. And we talked all about, uh, you know, drinking, not drinking, medication, and babies. It's a good one. Um, you can find it wherever good podcasts are heard. It was a bit tricky going to visit her, I won't lie. She has, uh, and I told her, I told this story on her show. Um, I turned up after I did a, um, there was a, a charity function that I was at, so I was in a suit. And I turned up to the Mamma Mia office. There's got to be 120 people there, maybe three blokes. And um, Mia's podcast studio is a greenhouse in the back of a warehouse. All right, so it's this big, huge room with a greenhouse covered in. Uh, soundproofing all right so it sits in the back of their uh, their office there and I, I found Mia back there I said hey I'll just go to the bathroom where is it it's over there I came back out of the bathroom and there was like five people waiting with their phones out it was the finale of The Bachelor all right and Mamma Mia is a big you know 
big part of why The Bachelor is fantastic. And I, you know, I'm very, very grateful to everybody for for all of the their support there. And you know, I, I what was really weird is that um, there was about five people. They just wanted to come and say hello and grab a photo, and that's all super cool. And about as soon as that happened, like ten more people stood up and they all started running over. And I got so scared. I got so scared. I, I kind of grabbed Mia's blouse and I hid behind her like I was a frightened kid in a shopping mall. Um, and it was wild, you know. I just had to kind of explain. It's like, hey, I'm actually really shy. I'm actually really introverted. Just give me a second, you know, because I was in, I'm going to sit and hide in a small little cubby house and have a conversation mode. I wasn't in, hey, I'm in a big room full of people mode. Um, so I had to take a breath and, and kind of get ready for that. But... Um, yeah, it was interesting, you know, trying not to be embarrassed about my uh, my reaction. But yeah, sometimes, uh, yeah, that was interesting. That hasn't happened for a while. But uh, yeah, um, it's a good uh, it's a good conversation that she and I had. I'm really grateful that, that we had it. This episode is brought to you today by The Iconic, which is Australia's leading online clothing store. They are very big fans of the show. They've been supporting the show for a while now. You already use The Iconic, and so do I. So please support them because they support me. You can do so by using the offer code that you'll find on their website at theiconic.com.au slash osher. It's about halfway down the left in the big black box. That is the code that you use at checkout to get 10% off full price styles over any purchase, with any purchase over $99. The Iconic stock over 700 brands. They offer 50,000 products, an incredible three-hour delivery within Sydney, same-day shipping in Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, and overnight delivery to New Zealand. Free returns for 100 days. And you shop at The Iconic anyway. So if you want to support the show, theiconic.com.au slash osher. Enter the offer code you see at checkout. 10% off full price styles with any purchase over 99 bucks. You can shop from your laptop, Shop from your phone. You can shop right now while listening to this show. Uh, I suppose please support the people that support this show and get the latest spring styles at your fingertips. Thank you very much to the Iconic for uh, helping out uh, independent digital broadcasting and let them know that you support this format, this medium as well um, by shopping there and letting them know that offer code's working. Thanks to everybody that enjoyed the Bachelorette finale. It uh, ended for, for folks overseas. I've been hosting a show here called The Bachelorette. It's the same as The Bachelorette that you've seen in your country, whatever language that's in. And uh, we had the finale on Thursday night. And it was really, really wonderful to see that we got such a massive ratings number. That was really cool. Twitter was super fun. Thanks to everybody that got on there and uh, made it great. Everybody that came and played on Twitter made it really, really fun. And I really enjoyed it every single week. And I'm very much looking forward to doing it. Uh, doing again again next year. So, let me tell you about my guest today. My guest today is Greg Callahan. He is the acting editor of Good Weekend magazine, which is in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age in Melbourne. He's a journalist and he is the author of a book that absolutely shook me to the core. It's a book called Bondi Badlands. And I reached out to Greg because I wanted to talk to him about this book. I just found him on Twitter, DM'd him. Are you the guy that wrote this book? He said, yes, I am. Can I come and talk to you about this on my podcast? Yes, I can. A week later, we're talking. I love Twitter. Bono Badlands is the true crime story of some heinous and despicable murders that happened at the beautiful park called Mark's Park, which is at the south end of Bondi Beach in Sydney. Now, right now, Mark's Park is home to an annual event called Sculpture by the Sea, which is a fantastic public art event, runs every November. 
Um, it stretches from Bondi all the way down to Bronte. So, you know, while you're wandering along the, crif- along the cliff tops there, admiring the whales, migrating, admiring the steel and the marble sculpture, the wood and the glass, just know that on those cliff tops around 25 years ago, roaming gangs frequently, violently bashed gay men who'd gone there in the evening to that park in search of a romantic rendezvous. The violence escalated beyond bashing. Some men were not only bashed, but they were thrown to their deaths from the tops of those cliffs. The story's harrowing because the majority of the perpetrators never got caught. And there's actually a new reward out right now from the New South Wales Police Force for any information on the case. Now, a big, big warning up the front of this show. In this conversation, Greg describes quite graphically the kind of violence that went on. And he and I use language that was the label at the time for this kind of violence. And we use a derogatory word. We use the word poofta. And to describe the kind of violence, it was poofta bashing. Now, I don't use this word in day-to-day conversation. I can tell you certainly not does Greg. Greg certainly does not. However, to adequately describe the attitude towards this kind of violence in the in the community, I felt it was important to leave that language in this show, as that was a language that was used to describe it at the time and gives you an idea of how the police investigation ended up being, the initial police investigation ended up being the way it was. There's lots of triggers in this conversation for any victims of violence. So if you're not feeling the best today, please enjoy any of the other wonderful episodes you can find at oshaginsberg.com. I've always been fascinated by this story. And I couldn't be more grateful to Greg for taking the time to talk to me about what he knew and for talking me through what is a crime that, in my opinion, should never be forgotten in our community. The book is called Bondi Badlands. You can get it on Amazon anywhere in the world. You can get it as an e-book. You can get it in hard copy. And you can follow Greg on Twitter. He's Greg Callahan one G-R-E-G-C-A-L-L-A-G-H-A-N, the number one. This is a heavy one. But this is an important one. So thank you for braving it. And here is Greg Callahan. (laughs) (laughs) Unreal. Hey, how are you, Greg? I'm great. How are you? I'm good, good. Can you tell folks where we are? We're in the, uh, the Fairfax building at lovely Darling Harbour. We're looking over the western side of Sydney Harbour, which is... um, the um, Barangaroo side, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a grey day, but an enjoyable experience coming here every day. Oh, thank you so much for this. I'm 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 very very excited that I can talk to you about this today. Is this is this building is this is this far from where you started in newspapers? I started over in um, well, I started in newspapers over in Surrey Hills in the uh, News Limited building, the Stark headquarters, the grey edifice that is News Limited on uh, Kipak Street. But it was a fantastic experience there as well. I've been very lucky in my career. And when did you know, how early did you know that journalism was what you wanted to do? Unfortunately, mate, I knew when I was about 15 years old, 14 (laughs) or 15, and um, I'd really made up my mind at that age. Remarkably, I've got a uh, a young daughter who knows she wants to be in um, show business and knew that she wanted to be singing and dancing at the age of six or seven. And she, she is now very, very determined and spends 
her life working to that to that goal. She's now twelve. Right. Well, so I guess you know. So at fifteen, this is. You know, we're both old. Uh, you know, fifteen. There's no internet. There's no. Uh, you know, basically, if you wanted to self-publish, you could perhaps nick a photocopier and put out a fanzine or something. What did you do? How did you start off? I uh, well, I started writing stories. Basically, I did apply for a, a Herald cadetship. I didn't want to go to university, and I went through various stages of um, of that process. And um, you know, as you can imagine, it was very competitive. Even in those days, yeah. there was something like two thousand applications for about five or six. Oh, actually, there were about eight. Positions, I think, at that stage. So I got through to the final stage, but um, I was deemed after passing with flying colours with spelling and with uh, the article that I wrote, which was considered very good. My personality wasn't considered quite right. I wasn't deemed aggressive enough to be a journalist. So <laughs> I went to university and <laughs> went there, took that route instead. Wow, well, so, well, yeah. you're not aggressive enough. That's 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 full I on. don't know if the word aggression was used, but I wasn't deemed um, uh, confident, I think. Oh, yes, okay. Yes, yes. Now... So when did you when did you decide to pursue this particular kind of uh, of journalism like the the kind of I guess sort of in, investigative or you know something else is going on here than either the cops or this company is telling us when did you decide to get that in Oh look very early in my career I I, I fell in love with long form journalism at quite a young age long form being extended features of 2500 words or more and what those features uh, offer the reader and is an amazing layered reader reader experience. They um, they get whether it's a profile, uh, it get, you can get under the skin of a person. You can try and and get into their headspace. You can explore their background. Whether it's an investigative crime story, you can show the the different layers to the to the crime. And I fell in love with that form of journalism quite early on. I wasn't that equipped at a young age to do those kinds of stories because they, the skills they require uh, are many. They require um, an ability to um, uh, think about how a story is constructed. They need colour. They need um, setting. They need the power of description as well as all those other Mm. Uh, qualities you need, like uh, being a great investigator. Mm. For argument's sake, if I was interviewing you now, I'd, I'd be watching what you're wearing, your mannerisms, um, whether you, your, your tone of voice, all that sort of stuff, which you need to do if you're writing a long-form feature. It's just not a matter of quoting what you say. It's not the what, it's the who. Right. Well, investigative reporting is... In, in, in my opinion, I, I think it's one of the more important things and, and, and free and independent investigative reporting outside of any kind of bias of a publisher, I feel, is very and vital to a democratic society. If, if I to use a sport analogy at the moment, we've seen David Walsh's 10-year pursuit of Lance Armstrong, blue cycling right open, um, Andrew Jennings' recent expose of what's going on with FIFA. What do you see as the role of an investigative journalist in a democratic society? Well, I think it's an incredibly important role because uh, investigations like that require an enormous amount of skill, but they also, more importantly, require an enormous amount of patience sticking with it. And, uh, you know, newspapers traditionally have had the resources to support that. Uh, you know, in these challenged times, it's, it is more difficult to do that kind of journalism. And it's very hard 
for, um, for, for argument's sake, freelance journalists to do that, that kind of um, investigative work over a period. It's just very, very time-consuming and there ain't any business model in it. No, and you receive all kinds of threats and uh, discrediting in the press from the people that you're investigating. Absolutely. And with social media now, of course, the subjects have a, have a way of coming back to bite you too. Yeah. And they may have a lot to answer for but in this day and age, in the age of the soundbite, they can say, oh, you know, you've misrepresented me. But they don't exactly say why and they don't exactly um, defend themselves successfully. But they can do it in a... They can do reach how many, however many Twitter followers they have mm. and, and discount it. So a lot of work can go into something, but it can also be dismissed by, by people very quickly as well. Well, I'm I'm really grateful that I'm here with you today. I I got in touch with you because I I read the book that you've written, Bondi Badlands. Uh, I pretty I think I'm pretty much I got it like as soon as it came out. It's about eight years ago now, and it was astonishingly spooky for me to read because at the time I was living on Knotts Avenue, about 150 meters from where these events took place, and I would. I got to the point where I couldn't read it at night because I was just so freaked out. And particularly, and we'll talk about this a little later on, particularly as I walked around and I saw some of the older locals and I thought, there's no way you didn't know what was what was happening here. Um, for folks who don't know the story, I hope it's okay with you if we kind of elaborate on a bit because it has come back into the press and that there's a, a recently a $100,000 reward has been put up for more information. Um, can you describe, if you would, the mood in Sydney at the time that this violence was was going on? What was the mood as far as, you know, the community's attitude towards homosexual men? Very, very different from now. It was a, a, a tricky period, really. We're talking about the, the late 1980s and early 1990s. So we're kind of at a social crossroads. We've got the height of the AIDS epidemic, so there was a lot of paranoia about gay men at that time. And there'd been growing social tolerance of, um, of gay men in particular, and I think homosexuality had only been legalised only a matter of seven or eight years earlier. 84, I think, in New 84, South Wales. In New South Wales. Apologies, in, in New South Wales, yeah, yeah about, about five or six years earlier. So there was growing tolerance, but there was also uh, still uh, a kind of, uh, you know wink wink acceptance of uh, of uh, of gay bashing or poofta bashing as 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 it was known then it was still a rite of passage for for young men that only started to really change i think uh, probably by the late mid to late 90s but as i say this was a really interesting time because on the one hand we had this growing tolerance and the other hand we had this kind of if you like backlash rite of passage oh yeah i mean anybody growing up um, in the in the 1970s and 80s, if you were in a, I, mean, I went to a boys' high school and, and I saw, you know, the the intolerance of uh, of, of gay men who were called poofters, and it was a way of proving yourself to you, to your mates, to your group, to your peers, to um, to go out and bash a poofter. That's kind of mind-boggling. Well, not only that, but I had I, in high school. I had a I had a gay teacher, and he had a very terrible time, you know. And um, and I, I don't know what recourse he would have had within the system at that time. 
but he was being teased mercilessly, you know. So it's a very different, very different time we're talking about and um, it's hard to imagine this going on today and if it does, it's episodic. It's not on the huge scale that it was during this time. And what kind of scale are we talking? Well, we're talking about uh, outside of the, 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 the men being thrown off the cliffs of Bondi, we're talking of, on the record of at least 80 men over a period of about six or seven years were likely killed. Um, and I have no way, we know, we know this from that period, I don't know that whether that was um, a kind of a peak in the, in the bashings and murders, because I don't have an historical comparison. I'm sure it was going on in the 1960s and 70s. I think earlier than that, it was probably, again, very episodic, because nobody thought... It wasn't an issue that was discussed. Mm. With, a, with a profile, anything has... Anybody, anything has, has, has a kind of um, a negative reaction to it. So, so you, you mentioned what the, the book is kind of focuses on. What, when did you personally become aware of what was happening uh, at the clifftops of South Bondi? I became aware of it, perfectly honest, when uh, the inquest was happening into the murders. I had no idea at the time. Um, I wasn't living at Bondi. I wasn't aware of the issues so much. So uh, it, it, it happened that um, I was reading news stories about the inquest, which was being led by Coroner Jacqueline Millage. How and many I, years after? This was in 2003. So 12 years. So 12 years later. Wow. The, 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 the inquest, I, I must say, was sparked by an incredible detective called Stephen Page, who, upon receiving letters from Ross Warren, Ross Warren being a newsreader who was thrown off the cliffs at uh, Bondi, Kay Warren, his mother, wrote letters wanting to have some sort of finality to, to his death. She was, again, convinced that he had been murdered, but she wanted... There had been an open finding on it and she wanted closure. Mm. So, And Steve took up the case. He took up the case just after, in the early 2000s, um, and he was like a, a dog with a bone. He did not drop that case. So let's just, let's just paint the picture a bit. Ross Warren, uh, as you mentioned, if anything has a profile, it has a, has a story. Ross Warren, was a, he was a weather reporter in Wollongong on a uh, local TV affiliate uh, of a, the national network. Very handsome guy, very good at his job, 25 years old, everything going for him, goes down to Sydney for the weekend never came back what happened he it was a friday night he he would often come up to sydney and stay with his very good mate um craig ellis in redfern and um they would uh, often go to the um what they call the golden gay mile in uh, oxford street which and was for folks listening from outside of the country it's uh it's not that way anymore unfortunately it's kind of moved out west a little bit but it was just the basically the it's the gay part of town. It's yeah. where the gay bars were. It's where the drag bars were. And it was all very much like that's where it happens and that's where everybody lived, yeah. Exactly. And he felt um, it was certainly wasn't what you'd call out, but he felt confident being away from Wollongong and in Sydney and knowing that, you know, nobody was going to kind of, you know, hit the phones and ring up the media or anything that he was in a gay bar. He felt very confident in that world. 
And it was uh, his way of kind of, um, I guess, um, de-stressing, having a bit of fun. He went to, to Oxford Street regularly on weekends. He drove up on Friday nights. As I say, stayed with his mate Craig. They had a few drinks, had pizza, and they'd go out. On that particular night, he didn't go out with Craig. He met a, a guy called Philip, and uh, they did the strip that night. So um, the story after that was that he um, said goodnight to his mate Philip, got in his car and drove to Bondi. But the interesting thing was that when he was parting from Philip, he was saying he was going home. Philip was standing on the footpath and saw he was driving in the opposite direction and knew probably where he was going. So to explain, Mark's Park at Bondi was is was what we would call a beat where as yet maybe unouted men would go and uh, engage in sex acts with each other it's not uncommon to have this sort of thing anywhere anywhere in the world um but that's what was happening at, at mark's park there's lots of low brush and bushes lots of cover it's also quite nice yes. it's a lovely part of the world yes it is <laughs> it is it is a lovely part of the world beats were very big amongst gay men for a very long time for the very reason that prior to the 1950s and 60s there was no such thing really as a gay bar. There was nowhere for gay men to go and congregate. Everything was very, um, ev was very underground and uh, so, but, so these beats had uh, a kind of social role if you like and a sexual role of course uh, for gay men. Now, Marks Park, as far as I understood in my research for the book, had been an active beat for since the 1940s and 50s. So it wasn't, it didn't begin in the 1980s. What began was an incredible spate of violence there. And so, from what we know about that night, he he drives to Marks Park, hoping to find some fulfilment that you know he didn't get at the nightclub. Yes, he was. He actually went to Marks Park quite a bit. He, it was kind of a romantic uh, place for him. He would take his boyfriends there and they would sit on the rocks and look out, look up at the moon and talk and look out at sea. It wasn't just a place for sexual rendezvous for him. It was in some ways a kind of, um, maybe it's overstating it, but maybe a kind of a spiritual place for him because mm -hmm. he went there quite often. Well, it is a, it's a very spiritual place. There's, mm. you know, it was, there's Aboriginal carvings there. It's, uh, you, you stand there and you watch the whales go by. You can't help but be touched by the majesty of the place. Absolutely. And he was very much into physical beauty. Um, and uh, so he had been there with previous boyfriends. He went there regularly. But he did go to, um, to the beat as well on a regular basis. Interestingly, he's... he's Boyfriends never knew, or the two that I spoke to never knew that it was a beat. Right. And the next morning, his car is found abandoned uh, at the top of the cliff. His keys are found at the bottom of the cliff, but he's nowhere to be seen. No, that's right. Nobody, nobody was ever found. Um, so that complicated the um, investigation, such as it was. Look, it was, a, it was a pretty lousy investigation. And it's a testament to the lack of police interest at that time that, um, you know, somebody as high profile as him uh, didn't get uh, a, a proper police investigation. It was what, very, very sloppy. What was the police reaction? Well, the police reaction was um, that from the, from 
pretty much from the get-go that it was um, a, a likely suicide or accident, you know, misadventure. Uh, they didn't really ever treat it as a murder investigation. It certainly wasn't given the, um, you know, the kind of investigative ammo of a murder investigation. Mm. Um, and that was in the July of 1989. And only months later, of course, somebody else went over and mm. his name was John Russell and he was a barman. Now, John Russell was very interesting because John Russell um, had just inherited $100,000 a lot of money in those days. It could have bought you an apartment, small apartment in Bondi. Mm. Um, and, uh, and he was actually celebrating. And he was celebrating with um, a mate of his called Dino and they were having a few beers in the, in the, in the pub. And uh, so he was a bit tanked and he, he was found, his body was found the next morning at the bottom of the cliffs. And um, of course, you know, again, the police investigation was um, incredibly sloppy. His clothes were on a mannequin outside the police station there. So that's how much forensic investigation was put into it. But, uh, and again, his, his um, murder was uh, at the time dismissed as a suicide. His family from, uh, didn't for a moment think, nor his friends. He wasn't depressive. He had no history of um, psychiatric illness. He was at the peak of his happiness. He was planning on moving up to his father's property within weeks. Um, he had he had had a few beers that night, but we've all many of us have done that walk. We've walked along there. You'd have to be, you know, very very high, very 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 drunk to slip over. And it just and the way the body f fell, there was so much that was to question about that man's death. The I want to talk a little bit about about the police investigation. What you're describing the the social acceptance of of gay bashing, dehumanising these people as like they're not worthy. It's totally okay to hit and punch them. You can't hit a dog, but go right ahead and hit and punch mm. that person because therefore you're more of a man. Do you feel? Do you think in all of your work? Do you think that? that attitude leaked into the, the police response? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the police are part of the community. They're, they're, they're human like everybody else and they have the attitudes and prejudices of the community. So um, to expect that the, the police would somehow be um, morally above that in, that in the context of that time, I think you'd be deluded. And, you know... As my mum used to say, it's not what people say, it's what they do. And, you know, you can, they, they made uh, sounds at the time about an investigation being pursued. But when you actually look at what was done, very little was done. John, John, the, the investigation into John Russell was a farce. And the, the, the investigation into Ross Warren, high profile as he, as he was, was um, at best third rate. So they, with Ross, they even though he's this high profile, on the up and up, news presenter, I uh, must have fallen off. Case closed. Yes, case closed. And and the the you know, the um, uh, Steve Page who investigated these murders some years later, he consulted a, um, a kind of a. I, I don't know what the term is, but waves expert mm. who determined that his body would have been washed out to sea probably within about six to eight hours oh. by the weather patterns that night. So right. it was very, very. So Steve did a really thorough kind of look into the 
that that disappearance, oh. um, if you like. What was the community's reaction? These two, there was only within a month of each other that these two incidents happened. What was the community's reaction? Uh, the, well, if you're talking about the general community, I think that there are a lot of people who are very upset by um, Ross Warren's um, disappearance. And um, he had a lot of very, very loyal friends. And I think there was absolute dismay about the way the investigation was handled. As for the broader community at that time, I suppose, you know, if you're reading a story, it, it's there and it might concern you for a few seconds and then it's, you know, the news cycle moves on. With John Russell, his, his family were quite vigorous, particularly his brother was particularly vigorous in chasing the cops, but to no avail. Only with Steve Page did the investigation get picked up with any kind of vim and verve, you know, um, and energy. So the thing that dis like, is the difference between the two of these men's uh, deaths is that with, at least with John Russell, there were photographs taken of his body at the bottom of the cliff. What do these photos show? Those photographs show that the, the way the body was lying at the base of the cliff was highly suspicious. It, it, it suggested that he'd been pushed, lifted up and pushed over, not accidentally fallen. The nature of his injuries also suggested there were precursor injuries, i.e. he'd been suffered injuries before he fell over or, or he's pushed over. So... Uh, there, there's a lot to um, a lot to be answered with with the way that was handled, you know. And his his brother and father are remarkable men, you know. They were very very accepting of him even at that time when it wasn't so, you know, trendy to accept gay people. His brother and him were particularly close. Peter and John were really close, and. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was it was a very sad state of affairs, and um, it went, when writing the book and speaking to them made it you know made it an even, quite a sad journey for me too because um, I felt for what they'd been through. There's there was something else though in the photographs that it boggles the mind that it was ignored at the time. What was in his hand? Uh, some hair. Some so he was he had obviously clutched. Uh, some hair of the, the perpetrators or one of the perpetrators as he was being um, as he was being thrown off. So you know, you, man, you could see it from space. You know what's what's going on. That hair incidentally went missing. Um, uh. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. By, um, by, the, by the cops, it, was, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't stored correctly, and the whole the whole um, 
the whole investigation was it was a was a real um, was a joke. It the like so there's a there's a dead human, dead man, loved dead man at the bottom of a cliff. He's got hair that's possibly not the same colour as his hair, clutched in his fist. Did they say, oh yeah, suicide? They th- no, they with um, that with it was kind of an open finding. They they suggested it was misadventure, i.e. he'd slipped or. Um, yeah, possible suicide. It was they didn't didn't definitively um, make uh, a finding on that. You have to remember that there wasn't really a well, there was an inquest, but it was I think five minutes. God. It wasn't it wasn't a, like a proper coroner's inquest, as I recall. With so it was just a matter of a few minutes, and his father, his brother Peter walked out absolutely disgusted at that time because he knew that his um, brother had been um, murdered. Now. If you can imagine a member of your family and you, you know they've been murdered and then um, it's so easily dismissed by the, by the cops, then you'd be absolutely furious, absolutely. I'd, the anger, I just can't, couldn't fathom. I'm honestly, Greg, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm trying to deep breathe because I'm on the edge of... I'm, I'm actually... I'm, I could never do your job because I'm, I'm kind of tearing up listening to this. Like just the absolute dehumanising of this man by the authorities, like, yeah, like, that it was not worth even putting an effort in to try and at least ask some questions. Ah, oh, it's just another dead poofter. It's just yeah, a bit I, much. It is, it is, yeah. Look, I don't know if it was as, as clear-cut as just another dead poofter. I think it was part of the psychology of the time. So there are people that you might care less about if they were murder victims. You'd care less about a pedophile being killed. You'd care less... I'm just giving some very extreme examples, but... You'd not comparing the two as equals, not, absolutely. Not, <laughs> not, not comparing the two as somebody recently did quite publicly, as yeah. we won't mention. Goodness, no. But no, but, you know, so, you know, you, a, a woman basher or a wife basher, you'd care less about. Um, and it might seem, you know, a bit of an extreme comparison, but... Uh, at the other end, you know, poofters somehow at that time um, were regarded as, um, you know, of less value as human beings. Um, of that I have no doubt. I'm, you know, knowing the police in, uh, who, were in, who were investigating those murders at the time. So it was, um, yeah, it was very, very troublesome. But the time wasn't strangely, and this may sound odd, but the time for them wasn't right. They couldn't get away with that now, but they could then. It's just, you know, I think about, I think about my family, I think about members of my family and exactly what you're saying, you know, if, if this sort of thing happened to members of my family and it was treated with such, you know, disrespect, I can't imagine the pain that their families had. I just can't imagine it. Well, well, indeed. The the kind of um, thumping irony now is that, of course, if there's any hint of um, gay hate, it's put in the, into the same category as race hate. So if, if, for argument's sake, you're a gay man living in Darlinghurst and your house gets firebombed, then... The, the police will be really bringing out the big, the big guns, not a very good metaphor, but bringing out the, the um, you know, all, all their, um, 
investigative force for, for something like that because it's it's treated so seriously now. It was quite different in those days. And we've so we've come a long way really. Hasn't really solved the murders and disappearances though. No, um, no. But there was a big um, there was somewhat of a break, I guess, when there were and these attacks were going on. And I guess the other thing you're describing, if this is what it means to be gay in society, so many people would never, never, ever say, uh, "Where'd you cut? Where'd your black eye come from, Jono? Oh, I fell over." Yes. They're never going to say, "I was at Mark's Park. Someone smashed me in the face while I was cruising." But didn't you do that yourself, mate? I mean, I remember in high school I got into fights, and I'd come home with my mate. And I'd make up some excuse to my mum, you know. I'd sort of, you know, walked into a door or something. We kind of all did that as males in those days, you know. And and gay men are, were particularly vulnerable in that regard. They were, easy, they were kind of um, easy targets. People knew that they wouldn't take complain or go to the cops. So there was a lot of um, uh, covering up. The climate fed this kind of um, this kind of violence, unfortunately. So would would. Obviously, murder is horrific and to be thrown off a cliff after being bashed is so dastardly, yet it wasn't, there was not just that, there was also, you know, fistfights and, and just general bashing up there, wasn't there? Oh, absolutely. And we, there was a person murdered there who, whose um, perpetrators were brought to, um, brought to trial, a Thai man called uh, Krichikorn Ratana Jarathaporn, and he was uh, he was uh, murdered there. Um, and he was bashed with uh, a, a mate of his who who was he was talking to on the cliff face. As far as we understand, uh, he wasn't actually there for cruising so much as he was there. He worked in Bondi. He was a waiter in a restaurant, and he'd gone met somebody and was talking with them and they were sitting when they were approached by what was called the Alexandria Eight, a bunch of uh, teenage boys uh, gang who um, attacked uh, Critchicorn with a claw hammer. A claw hammer? One of them did, uh, attached, uh, attacked him with a claw ha hammer and his body um, wasn't found until two days afterwards. Bits of his clothing were all over the cliff face the other person who was taken to accident and emergency survived um, with quite serious injuries. Uh, and his, he spoke to the police, but it took the police two days to find that body. The body was for many hours was lying on a ledge beneath um, uh, Tamarama, or just, a, just around near Tamarama, uh, was lying on a ledge beneath the top of the cliff and it's thought that Critchicorn um, at some point, some hours after falling there and being unconscious, roused and moved and then went into the, the ocean. So his body was found two days later, wedged between rocks at the... His body didn't go out to sea because he got wedged between two rocks at that time. So he'd, he was lying there dying? He was lying, lying there dying for at least 12 hours, yeah. What did the bloke that escaped uh, say? Like, how, what did he report about these guys that led to the conviction of these uh, attackers? He said that um, they um, basically approached them en masse and um, split them up. You know, they ran in different directions and, uh, you know, engaged in, you know, absolute 
horrific violence. Um, they were all they all were all carrying something, or most of them did. One I think had a piece of wood or a stick. But the main perpetrator, one of two brothers, had a had a claw hammer that he'd taken. They'd all taken their stuff from their place in Redfern, where they'd been smoking bongs that night and drinking. They turned up there at the cliff face, I think, around midnight or just but after midnight. Not grown men, you said teenagers. How? What are the age range? Uh, the age ranges were, I, uh, I think, from 16 to about 18. Um, oh my God. So some were underage and couldn't be identified at the time, and but some were um, were old enough to be identified in the newspapers. There were two brothers. And a, and a bunch of others. I guess you have to understand that at that time there were a number of gangs. So it was okay to 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 to, to bash a gay man, but there were a number at that time you could get away with it. But there were a number of gangs that were operating. There was a Bondi Boys that were pretty much concentrated around the Bondi area, and there were um, another gang called uh, well loosely called the Alexandria Eight, and. Um, and members of the, that gang um, were um, also uh, convicted of the murder of Richard uh, Johnson, a uh, New Zealander, in 1988 in Alexandria Park. So and also the members of these gangs were shifting. So some members of one gang would move in, would be part of another, and they, mm. some of them knew one another. I have no doubt that some of the perpetrators of these earlier crimes know something about the deaths of um, Ross Warren and, um, and John Russell. But you I said had, there was eight, eight of them, but how many got convicted? Uh, as I recall, um, I think... This is in the death of the, the, yeah, this the is, Thai yeah, gentleman. But, yeah, I, I think at least three did. Got very serious sentences. Um, and uh, bearing in mind that they were young at the time, so they, they were released from jail many years ago. All these men would now be in their 40s. They'd be middle-aged, probably... Um, well, I know of one who's, you know, had children, so he'd be sort of... Um, and their children would even be teenagers, wow. early 20s themselves now. So I wonder if they ever thought when they were tucking their kids into bed at night of well, what, you know, might happen to them if they turned out to be gay or lesbian or something, you know. Well, this is what... This is the so thing that, of all the things in the book that chilled me to the bone the most, and I warn you now if you read it, there's a lot... Um, there was a, a waiter, a cafe waiter by the name of Rick, who managed to escape. Yes. And he heard uh, two things that completely freaked me out. This was a month after John Russell was thrown off the cliff. The first thing he heard was, uh, let's throw him off where we threw the other one off. And the other thing that he talked about was that there were two or three, I think, girls with them who mm. were just cackling, mm. cackling with glee. And I think you talked about those men tucking their kids into bed. I think these women are out and about. They've probably had kids of their own by now. And they saw it. They know. They know these people. And they're living their lives out and about. Some, they're living next door to people. Absolutely. I mean, these women would now be in their, would, would now be in their 40s. Yeah, some of the, all, the, all these teenage boys, as, as you can imagine, hung out with girls. So girls were, were kind of moved in and they weren't part of the core gangs, but they moved in and out of the, the gangs and they hung around with them. Uh, so, um, yeah, and um, there was even a, a, a gay boy who was on the periphery of one of these gangs as well who um, wasn't out at the time but came out later. Interestingly, the, the, the man you mentioned, I called him the man who got away 
in the book, called Rick, has now um, has now come out and, and in a newspaper and sort of identified in, in Harold, in fact, and given his real name. Because now, after all these years, he's he's no longer scared. But he was very, very when I when I interviewed him, and which was you know still 13, 14 years after the crime, he was very, very traumatized by it. And I don't think I'm speaking too much out of turn. I won't mention his name. But he was freaked out because he'd worked in the courts and he'd seen some of these guys go through the court system. So he was very cautious about, about having himself identified at that time. Um, so he, he, he saw the girls and he heard that, that sort of... That, um, haunting line about, yeah, the um, where we threw the other guy off. And um, I can only think timing-wise that must have been John Russell because John Russell went over in November 1989 over the cliff. Ross went over in um, July of 1989. There, were a few, there was a few months dip difference. In 1990, that was when Critchacorn was murdered. So we're talking about a pretty tight time frame. Mm. We're talking about 16 to 19-year-olds going through this kind of, um, you know, you got to be, you know, you got to be the play the big man type, um, you know, aspect of, of their lives at that time. It's for, for teenage boys. It's possibly the the worst age. Is 16? It's about mm. 15, 16, 17 because you're trying to prove so much to your world, particularly in those days where you kind of proved yourself on the sporting field or you proved yourself with your fists or in some way, yeah. you know. It does remind me of the, the oh, I don't know, if to draw any comparison of the charisma around in the, in the film Snowtown, the, the charisma of the ringleader of all that who somehow made it okay for these young kids around him to commit these absolutely horrific atrocities and they just followed along because he had that kind of charisma. Was there a certain centre point around all this stuff? That is a, such a tremendous insight. It's so true that there was. Um, I can't name him but there was one person in particular, it, it, it was head of the, the Bondi boys who was very much in that kind of um, uh, role that you're talking about. Highly charismatic, hyper-confident, um, came from a disturbed background, um, very violence-prone, a long history with the police. How come you can't name him? Uh, because it would be... Um, I think I wouldn't want to get you into legal trouble or myself into legal trouble. Oh, OK. Because at that, that time he was underage as well, which is a legal minefield. Boy, that's... OK. What changed at all? Did this case and the investigation of this case um, have any effect on the way that the police liaised or, 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 or interacted? Like, was, did, did it ever get OK for gay men to come forward to the cops? Look, I think things started changing in the late 90s. Um, so the social climate was changing quite dramatically. I think then Stephen Page, you know... He picked up the ball and, and ran with it. He, he kind of he re read these letters from Ross Warren's mother. He felt an obli spoke to her. He developed a relationship with the, with the woman. He felt an obligation to her. He thought that this case was the tip of the iceberg. He started Operation Taradale. They gave him the, um, 
you know, the, uh, the resources to undertake a proper investigation. And um, he stuck with it for over two years. Um, so uh, it got, it really did get due diligence uh, from that point on. But time had moved on, you know, and the, the initial investigation in terms of forensic was so bad that it's, it's very, very difficult in these situations to secure charges, let alone convictions, you know. And it was such a shifting mosaic amongst, amongst the members of these gangs. And, you know, there was quite a well-known footballer who was well, no who was well known as a basher as well, who I won't name as well, rugby league footballer. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's possibly one of the hardest cases to try and unpack. Um, the, these murders were, were sort of collecting dust for, for so long that um, Steve did a miraculous job. He brought, you know, a very high-profile inquest into play and it was found that John um, Russell had been murdered. Uh, so that was an amazing, um, amazing change. And now, of course, there's the $100,000, um, you know, the enticement of the $100,000 for people to, to come forward. Um, so who knows? Um, something may come out. I've always had a feeling that, that we would find out about the death of John Russell at least. There's just too many players at play. It feels, I mean, boys aren't going to keep things that cause so much excitement and adrenaline secret, are they? They're going to brag. Well, yeah, they, they, they were, there were mutterings amongst the, um, the, the boys who were convicted of uh, Critchicorn's murder in jail. They, Steve had, um, they were still in jail when Steve was doing the investigation and he had their cells tapped. But there was, there was certainly hints at wider knowledge, but nothing enough to secure, um, you know, solid charges that would stand up in court. So uh, what he successfully did, though, was bring this to the fore. Things had changed. There'd been gay and lesbian liaison units set up within the police departments. This was prior to Steve. I think in the 1990s they were starting mm. to come into play. So things had really started to change. What... Steve had was um, was given the um, the you know the the force of um, resources to actually do something that was going to make a difference. Wasn't there a? I seem to remember because I was in Sydney by this point. Wasn't there a an article in the Star Observer of like, hey, we're investigating this. Did you ever encounter anything up at Marks Park? Yeah, there were a number of um, stories in the gay press. Just simply by virtue of um, there were a lot of stories in the gay press, incidentally, at the time, um, the gay community knew that um, Ross Warren had been murdered. The gay community knew that John Russell had been murdered. God knows they knew that Critchicorn Ratana Jarathaporn had been murdered. Um, so there was no, there was no doubt uh, in the community that this was going on. They knew about the bashings on Oxford Street. They knew about the bashings on Flinders Street. They knew about the bashings in... Um, uh, Randwick Park, they knew about the bashings in Alexandria Park. So, but it was like an island of knowledge that wasn't being <laughs> shared with, or wasn't, maybe not being totally shared, but wasn't securing um, public support. Yeah. What about, and so did you start op uh, uh, reporting on it when Oper Operation Taradale started? I started at the inquest, that's right. right. I did actually did a story which was a precursor to the book for the Week in Australian magazine. Um, the, the cases kind of um, uh, fascinated me. 
And um, I met um, John Russell's family, his brother and, and dad, and developed a relationship with them. And so I wrote the story and uh, that was published and then um, I wasn't actually thinking of a book and I got approached by a, a publisher and major publisher and I wrote, wrote the book. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, um, as I say, it was, it was a journey because you become part of people's lives when you do these, these sorts of books. And um, in a way, you feel you owe it to them to make sure the book's done because sometimes they're not easy to finish. Yeah, as you start, I guess at first it's just uh, here I am, Greg, and I'm reporting on that thing over there. Once you start interviewing the families of the victims, they're like, oh, I'm now enrolled. Absolutely. Enrolled is a very good word to use. It is. You're, you're, um, you are enrolled. You're emotionally enrolled is what happens. And, um you can't then just leave it. Inter interestingly, there was an earlier disappearance, disappearance uh, at, uh, at Bondi, a French national called Gillies Matani. Now, Gillies uh, disappeared after going for a walk one afternoon in 1985. Now, he was part of his disappearance was part of Operation Taradale for very good reason. And Steve was always had an open mind about that because it didn't fit the timeline of all the other murders and disappearances at Bondi. If, if, if uh, Gillies was murdered, uh, he um, was most likely murdered by a different group, an earlier group. But Gillies is an interesting case because unlike all the others who are very happy and had lots of reasons to live. Gilly, Gillies had a history of depression and uh, it's possible that he, his case may have been a suicide. I, you know, I haven't made up my mind with that one. It's not for me to make up my mind really, but um, it doesn't, didn't fit the timeline of the, all the, um, the other murders and disappearances. But I have absolutely no doubt, not one shred of doubt that John Russell was murdered and that... Um, Ross Warren was murdered. We like to, you know, watch the telly. We see bad things are happening in the world. We then turn it off. We go about eating our, uh, you know, beautiful rump steak, <laughs> our avocados in the wintertime. You know, we live in this incredible country. Knowing what you know, you can't unknow stuff that you've known. How does, that, how does it make you feel knowing that there are so many people, if, if just doing the maths, if one of these people told a mate, there would have been at least, there's at least 20, 25 people that know. How does it make you feel, knowing that these folks are out there? Uh, look, it, it, it disturbs me, but then a lot of things disturb me. You know, I've done other, other murder cases and, and, and done stories on, on other families of, of victims. Um, and... Uh, you, you always want some form of closure more than anything. Um, the families in the, in the Bondi, in the cases of the Bondi murders, uh, haven't been given closure. And um, I would love for some information to come out to, even if it doesn't lead to a murder conviction, just an explanation, mm. some closure for families. Not long after I read the book, I was... Oh look, you know, I was I was down the beach. I was having a surf, and there were some old blokes, old, older guys nearby. I, you know, didn't really know them, but I'd seen them out in the surf a bit, and 
one of them was joking about something and one of them, it was like someone patted someone on the back, like you did a great job, but pat him on the bum a little, like uh, his wetsuit. And one of them turned around, turned around and screams, fag in the bush, fag in the bush. And I thought, oh my God. And you know, these guys have lived there forever. And I thought, oh, hang on a second. Someone knows, or you know, it just it, it just sent chills down my spine mm. that that came out of it. This guy would have been seventy, you know. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, look, it's the times have changed, haven't they? I mean, you know, footballers tap one another on the on the bum and they hug and they, you know, go, go into convulsions of um, yeah. celebration. And when I was young, that wasn't the case. Um, that's very different. But it was more um, that it was more the the fag in the bush. Yes, that he yes, screamed that, at him right. as like that is a terrible thing. Yes, yes. Well, you said he was seventy years old. I, I guess it's a generational thing, you know, where young young people don't see it that way. Older, yeah. older people still carry those um, those prejudices, despite the fact that society's moved on. You know, it's not limited to a few seventy year old men. We've got you know politicians <laughs> who haven't kept up with the times. You know. So who carry sort of rather kind of retrograde attitudes about stuff. So nothing like that surprises me. I mean, I just feel very lucky, Osher, in, in, like you do, that we live in a, a remarkable country. I think the Pew International study showed that Australians are, are about the most tolerant in the world. So if you think things are pretty bad here, and I know that we often bag ourselves for racism, and for, and for good reason. I think it's good to be able to... Uh, criticise ourselves and, and call ourselves up at times. But overall, I think we're a pretty tolerant society and I think that's come from our very good um, secular traditions and our English parliamentary system heritage mm. and um, I think that's to be prized. There is, as we mentioned before, there's a reward, $100,000. What, what are your hopes? Are you feeling good about it? I feel good because it's being recognised and I feel good that, um, that for the families that there, there is that hope. As I say, I've, I've always had a feeling that um, something will come out that will shed light on the John Russell case. Mm. Um, so who knows, you know? I, I expect the $100,000 might be part of it. It might need another catalyst. It might be somebody... Um, it might sound a bit Hollywood, but on, the, on their deathbed or mm. um, being threatened by somebody else or uh, there's, there's, you know, they're all covering them, themselves in this case. They've all got something to... All that, those, those young men from all those years ago yeah. all have something to hide and many of them have had very dodgy histories since then. Well, as far as I, I know, when I was doing the book and some time after that. So... Um, they're not going to add to their troubles. They all haven't. If it's any, if any, if it's any um, consolation to the families, they haven't exactly had, you know, glamorous lives. Um, so these are. We've talked about the the crimes that we do know about. Given in your research, you mentioned uh, uh, Gilles Gillies, the French Gilles, guy. Yeah, you mentioned yeah. him. How how many others could you at least? I don't use the word tentatively, but I would, like possibly link. Like how many other things that were classified as either a suicide or this guy got beaten up one night by whoever knows. How many, how many murders do you think were connected to all this overall? Look, there could, be, there could have been up to 80, but the ones that we definitely know of, um, 
were probably, uh, if you're talking about, we're not obviously we're moving outside the geography of Bondi, but if we're talking about Sydney and and uh, broadly sort of um, inner to outer Sydney, um, we're talking of at least between 18 late 1988 and prob probably 19 mid 1991 at least 12. That's just astonishing. 12 men, yeah. Well, that, that's de that's definite because um, there were. There was um, a gentleman who was um, who'd been well known to go to um, Alexandria Park to cruise men. He used to take his dog with him. He was murdered in his home. There was Richard Johnson who was murdered in Alexandria Park. There was another guy who was fished out of Sydney Harbour. There have been a number of. There were a lot during that time. Another another man called Raymond Keem in um, Randwick in a park in Randwick. So they were they were the definites. But outside that, there are a lot more. Um, unsolved um, cases of people um, dying, gay men. So it could be, could, the figure is likely to be a lot bigger than that. We've talked about some pretty grim stuff today. This is just one day of my life, but you do this, as you mentioned, you would do this every single day. How do you, how do you brighten your day? How do you get through it? How do you get to sleep at night? How do you shut this stuff out? I'm pretty successfully. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that makes me sort of, Look, you have to detach yourself. You yeah. know, I, th I, th I, th the people who I think are just remarkable human beings are the doctors and nurses in accident and emergency on a Friday night in our hospitals who have to deal with, you know, atrocious things and 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 uh, deal with the stress of that. Look, it, it, it's not like I do this day in day out. And I, I, the people at the the coalface of the of the police, who I have a, a lot of overall have a tremendous respect for. I think the police force now has really, in terms of the, the gay issues, has certainly lifted its game. But overall, I think that the police forces have much, uh, much more um, professional, high-grade operation than it was yeah. 25 years ago. And um, I recently, or last year, did a big story about the murder of an Indian, uh, an Indian girl. And um, the police investigation into that was impeccable. And it, was, it, was, it resulted in a conviction in, in court, but it also, more importantly, got this guy off the street within 48 hours. Well, I'm happy to hear that there's a nice arc. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't be more grateful for your time, man. I've, I've been wanting to speak to you for a while, and I just, one day I found you on Twitter. I was like, could you be that guy? And you're, <laughs> you're that guy, and here we are a week later. I couldn't be more grateful. Thank you so much. Well, for your time. It's, it's great talking to you. I appreciate your questions. Of course, man. Thank you. I'm going to take your photo, okay? Oh, yeah, sure. Real sure. quick, okay. Thank you so much for listening to that. Thank you for being here and thank you for listening to that show and thank you to Greg Callahan for joining me. You can find Greg on Twitter at Greg, C-A-L-L-A-G-H-A-N, the number one on Twitter. That's where he is. If you uh, enjoyed the show, there's plenty more at osherginsberg.com. That's where you can subscribe. You can also email me, send osher email at gmail.com and you can find me on Facebook or Twitter or wherever you like on Instagram. I'm around. I'm around. Um... I hope you're okay after that conversation. I, uh, as you heard me say, I was, I, I was, sorry, I'm just rearranging stuff on my desk. I'm so nervous. I was so distraught when I first read that book. Um, and to be honest, I still am because listening to that story again and listening to just how dehumanizing and dehumanized those men were just, just absolutely broke my heart. And uh, it's just so, so important for me to recognize those crimes and to talk about those crimes because 
no civilized society should have this sort of thing happening within it. So I thank you very much for listening and supporting the show each and every week. Um, I know that was a tough one, but I hope you're going to be okay for the rest of the day. Um, Until we talk next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.